a very good morning to you. Hopefully, now by, hopefully by now you've got coffee. Um, we had a slight disaster this morning with the coffee. I apologise for that. Poor Samara done an amazing job getting everything ready, and just things hadn't quite worked out as planned. So thank you for being gracious and bearing with us. When I first came to the vineyard, uh, as many of you know, I was actually in hot pursuit of Kate, uh, who wasn't my wife at the time, but eventually, uh, after many years of pursuit, she became uh, my, my wife, um, fortunately. But that's another story, and that's an aside. But when I first came to the vineyard, it was actually the worship that, um, that first grabbed my attention. I'd kind of grown up, my, my background growing up was completely unchurched, and so I wasn't really too familiar with what church looked like, apart from sort of um, going to chapel at school and going to carol services and all those kinds of things. But um, when I walked through the doors of this church, which at the time was meeting in a school hall, not too dissimilar to this one, I, I stepped into something that I'd never experienced or never seen before. I'd never seen anything like it. Some of you may have been maybe here the first, for the first time uh, this morning. And you may not be familiar with church. You may not spend your Sundays at church and sort of stumble into this thing. And it's like, oh my gosh, what, what is this? You know, for many of us, it's actually too overwhelming. It can be too overwhelming. There was somebody who was here... Uh, just uh, last week, the week before, it, just, it was just sort of, I, this is too much, I'm not sure what this is, and I kind of just need to leave, and then hang out outside. That's perfectly fine, that's perfectly fine. Uh, just, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it can be quite a surprise. I'd never seen anything like it before. And I'd stepped into a room, I, I was late, I was a student back then, uh, and so I was late. Uh, little did I realize at the time that that's vineyard time, uh, and so I probably was early. Um, but uh, that kind of got, I got used to that over the years. But I arrived late and the worship had already started. And I walked into this room and there were just these people who were absolutely lost in worship. They were lost in adoration. They were completely and utterly caught up in the presence of God and in, in worshipping the Lord. And for us here in the vineyard, worship is uh, one of the highest priorities for us uh, over the years it's been the thing for which the vineyard if the vineyard is known anywhere around the church it tends to be known for the worship it's the thing that the vineyard has become most characterized uh, for it's one of the things that we're most well known for it's it's the thing that's got the attention uh, uh, got the attention of the church in the early days when the, the teams when john wimber and the teams from the vineyard first came over to these shores it was actually the worship First of all, the worship that kind of caught people's attention. And, um, and it's like, what was it about the worship that so captured us? What was it about the worship that so caught our attention, caught people's attention back then? Well, you'll have heard it before, but um, it's sort of like what we've just done. You know, it's singing to the Lord. It's singing to Jesus because we love him. It wasn't, it wasn't just sort of telling each other about him, you know, because he's great, which he is. It was just um, there was something that was different. It was just sing, singing these simple 
songs to Jesus, uh, showing him, telling him that we loved him. Like we've just done, telling him of how thankful we are for all that he has done. And singing to him of his love and his goodness and his mercy and his grace. And um, as we worshipped, as we stepped into this thing called worship, um, there was there was like this uh, just singing these simple love songs to Jesus. There was this there was this sweetness about the whole thing. There was a simplicity about it. It was um, it was actually very accessible. It was easy to kind of join in. You know, you could remember the words, and um, you know, uh, you could remember the words, and it was uh, you could sing them over and over and over, and it was okay to sing them over and over and over. That wasn't that wasn't a problem. You know, if you were a worship leader, um, you know, as long as you could play C, D, and G, you know, on the guitar, you were on the team. You you were you were that was all you needed. It was really simple. Um, and as we gathered together, as this part of his precious bride um, the church as we gave ourselves to worshipping him as we sang these simple love songs to Jesus um, the presence of God would come upon us as he has done this morning the presence of the spirit of God would land upon us as um, as he would inhabit the praises of his people so we're finishing off our series uh, looking at some of the distinctives of the vineyard and uh, this morning I want us to take a look at what is one of the things I think one of the most treasured gifts I think the Lord has um, entrusted into our care here in the vineyard and uh, I want us to have a look at worship. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one here. (laughs) Mike's away. just for the record, I think I've decided that I'm, you must remind me not to ever let Mike have a holiday again. Um, so uh, there, there should be Bibles. There's one here if anyone wants to come and get it. Uh, steal a Bible from somebody else. Um, and, uh, borrow a Bible, give it back. Um, have a look on your phone. Share your Bibles. Let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is lurking somewhere in the Old Testament. It's around the Psalms. If you don't know where it is, have a look it up in the... Um, have a look it up in the contents and see how you go. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, my glasses are broken. <laughs> Times are hard. <laughs> yeah, there'll be an extra offering later on. <laughs> We pass the offering baskets for us twice. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. We don't, we don't do that here. Okay. In the year... I, can't, I still can't really see it. In the year that King Uzziah died... <laughs> yes. Yes, maybe you should speak to yourself. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sounds of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, 
have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here with us this morning. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us. You would um, pour out your spirit upon us and you would transform us with ever-increasing glory into the precious image of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. The Westminster Confession of 1647 declared that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Archbishop William Temple had this to say about worship. He said this, he said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. David Watson wrote, the primary task of the church is to worship God. God's people are called to be a worshiping community. This is the first priority of every Christian. And without question, if we were to ask ourselves what it is specifically that the Lord has mandated us with here in the vineyard, one of the answers would, would have to be worship. As you know, you'll have heard the story many times before, but the vineyard started with a a, a bunch of very ordinary people, uh, pretty pharisaical by their own uh, admission, by their own definition. They were fairly conservative evangelical, uh, and they got together and they cried out to seek the face of the Lord. Carl Tuttle, who uh, has been here on uh, many occasions, and he was effectively... Um, he was much younger then, obviously, uh, but he was, um, he was effectively one of the vineyard's kind of first worship leaders. He wrote this about the early days of vineyard worship. He said, vineyard worship really began in my sister's living room in the autumn of 1976. A handful of us met one Sunday ev- uh, after one Sunday evening service to talk and to pray, particularly about the state of our lives, particularly in relation to our lives in Christ, and we were tired, we were burnt out, and we were somewhat disillusioned. And at the end of the meeting, I was asked if I'd bring my guitar the following week, and from those early meetings, our worship began to evolve. He goes on and he said, I, I knew a handful of the choruses that came out of the Jesus, Jesus movement, and in particular Maranatha music, so we just sang those. I didn't have a list, we didn't have lyrics, I just sang what came to mind, and people joined in. At first, It was for a few minutes, but over the months and as the number of people increased, it would go on for at least like 45 minutes. Again, we had no lyrics, no list, and frankly, no plan, just trying to be sensitive to God and not getting in the way. It was clear God was doing something very special with this group of people. Almost every song we wrote was in the first person, direct to God. Very personal, very intimate. They were, for the most part, prayers set to music. And uh, as these, this group of people 
gathered. Um, they gathered in these small groups, singing these simple songs, not about God necessarily, but to him. And as they turned their attention to him, as they fixed their eyes upon him, as they sang these simple songs uh, um, of adoration, of worship, the Spirit of God would just come in their midst. The Spirit of God, the presence of the living God would fall upon these groups of people. And they began to be transformed. And the vineyard was birthed. And one of the reasons I tell you all of that is um, because I think it's important. I think it's important for us all to know where we came from. This is sort of part of like our, our family history, if you like. It's, it's important for us to know what it is that God um, puts in us as a family of churches. Right from the very beginning, right from those very earliest days, it's like it's part of our um, DNA. It's part of our heritage, this simple, accessible, intimate worship. It's, it's, a, it's a key ingredient, if you like, of, of the vineyard uh, uh, that, that God has entrusted into our care um, so that we can bring that flavor to the whole stew of the body of Christ. You, often talk, you know you hear me talking about the body of Christ being like a big stew and we're just one, the vineyard is just one very small flavor in that stew. But we're still a flavor. We still have a distinct flavor and worship is a key part of that flavor. And so we need to know where we've come from. Now, when I'm talking about worship, and in the main I'm talking about sung worship, I think there's something, there's something very biblical about sung worship. I think there's something that the Lord has mandated on us in the vineyard about sung worship. But our view of worship is, um, is broader than that. It includes that, but it's broader than that. We view, our, uh, we view our worship as our whole lives offered in living sacrifice. All that we are, everything that we do, is, is, uh, should be an act of humble service to the Lord. Romans chapter 12 uh, says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for us, in light of everything that Jesus has done on the cross, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so our worship includes uh, singing, it includes uh, prayer, it includes praise, it includes studying, it includes supplication, it includes service, it includes thanksgiving, it includes work, you know, the jobs that we do. It includes the washing up. It, 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 all of it. All of it can be an act of worship. And we very much approach this from our assumption, you know, our working practice, if you like, that, that worship is... Um, is more sort of chocolate milkshake than grapefruit. Yeah? You, you know, you all have heard John, if you've been around this long, John Mumford would talk endlessly about chocolate milkshakes and grapefruits. Yeah? Um, okay, let me explain. The difference between the sort of grapefruit and chocolate milkshake way of approaching life is um, our tendency, being sort of quite, quite liking the, the Greek influences, we quite like to compartmentalize our lives like a grapefruit. So, you know, you cut a grapefruit in half and it's in its, all its different segments, you know, and you've got that little funny spoon with the serrated edge 
and you kind of cut around if anyone eats a grapefruit. Um, I never really understood why grapefruit was such a popular breakfast thing. It's like a, it's a hard way to start the day. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, you've got your little life in all these different segments. And so you have your sort of spiritual life is one segment. You know, and, then your, um, and then church life is another segment. And then work is another segment. And they're very separate and distinct. And your family is another segment. You know, and your sex life is another segment. And all these things, they're all segmented and just cut off from each other. And ne'er the twain will ever meet. There'll be no inter- sort of connection or correlation between any of these things. Right? That's a kind of grapefruit way of living our lives. And, and for those of us who kind of like order and sort of rational thinking, that feels like it makes good sense. But the Hebrew way of thinking, if you look at the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew mindset was much more sort of mishmash, much more mixed up than that. And so, hence, chocolate milkshake. And so rather than dividing all these different parts of our lives into these various segments, it all got sort of chucked into the blender and blitzed. <laughs> And poured out into this delicious, thick, gooey chocolate milkshake. And you can't tell where the chocolate begins and the ice cream ends and the milk starts. It's all blurred and blended into one. And so there isn't a separation between our spiritual lives and our home lives and our work lives and all those different parts of our There is no distinction. It's all supposed to be blitzed in the chocolate milkshake, which is kind of like a paraphrase of Romans 12, basically. Yes? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as chocolate milkshakes rather than grapefruits, is what Paul is really trying to say here. That is your spiritual act of worship. Have I lost you completely? Oh, good. You're looking at me as if I'm strange. Let's not go there. Um, we love all of the value, with, with, um, with all, of, all the different expressions of worship. We love all the different ways that we can worship as well. We love all of that diversity. And we would encourage us all to continue to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice through him. However it is that we are worshipping him, whether that's in our workplaces or at home looking after the children or when we're washing up or whatever it is that we're doing, let's view these things as acts of worship. But if you were to ask me what it is that I believe the Lord has specifically mandated us within the vineyard, not instead of all of those other ways of expressing worship, but as well as, I would have to say that it's about sung worship individual and corporate and it has to do first and foremost uh, with intimacy in worship and that's what i think we see from this passage in isaiah have a look at isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 um in the years king Uzziah died i saw the lord seated on a throne high and exalted the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphs each with six wings with two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they were flying they were calling to one another holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory and King Uzziah, he was a king, uh, he had a long and distinguished reign. He began, I think, when he was uh, 16 years old. I think it lasted something like 52 years. And overall, he was a good king. Uh, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, he was a strong king. He led Israel in military victories over the Philistines. Uh, his fame spread. But um, 
his, the end of his life got a little bit uh, out of kilter and his life ended tragically. Um, towards the end of his life, he turned his back on the Lord. He ended up um, riddled with leprosy. He died uh, alone. And I don't, know, I don't know whether it's reading between the lines, uh, but my thoughts on this, for what it's worth, is that Isaiah, you know, is the prophet sort of to the king and his close relationship with um, King Uzziah. I would imagine that now that Uzziah's dead, he's feeling pretty down. You know, it's like he's on the one hand, he's saying in the, in, in the year that a great king died, but it's also like he's saying in the year that a great and wise king who had a pretty tragic end died. And if Isaiah's feeling a little discouraged, I, I think he had good reason. Because not only had this great king passed away, but he, his life had ended tragically. It hadn't ended as well as it had been lived. And you'd forgive Isaiah for asking the question of, you know, where is the Lord in all of this? Where, where is the Lord in all of this? This great king had lived this great life. He'd served the Lord faithfully, and then it all just kind of went to pot. You know, it's like, where is God in the midst of this whole situation? And we often feel like that. We often feel like asking the question is like, where is the Lord in this? You know, you look at life, and, and the, the circumstances of your life just don't feel like they're making sense. It just doesn't feel like it's adding up. And so you ask the question, where's the Lord? Everything was going along so well, everything was going swimmingly, and then all of a sudden it's like, where did the Lord go? One day you're healthy, and then the next you're not. One day you've got a job, and then the next you haven't. Uh, One day it feels like everything's on track, and life couldn't be better, and you're sailing along, tickety-boo, and then suddenly out from nowhere things change, and it's like your whole life is is kicked up in the air and you're spinning in there and you you haven't landed you're just like going where is god where is the lord in all of this or what does isaiah say how does he handle this situation what does he see Uh, he says in verse one i saw the lord seated on a throne high and exalted And the truth of the matter is, the reality of our circumstances is that um, when we're asking the question, where is the Lord in all of this? Um, The Lord is sitting on his throne. The Lord is sitting on his throne. God is still enthroned in heaven. God is still in charge of all creation. There is a throne in heaven, and the Lord sits on it as the sovereign ruler of the universe. There is a central, this is a central fact Um, and reality of heaven that there is a throne and that God is upon it Isaiah may have been discouraged Isaiah may have even been depressed because this once great king of Israel is no longer on his throne but it's like the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 is showing Isaiah and saying Uzziah may not be on his throne but I am on my throne Robert Browning said God is in his heaven all's right with the world and that's why we worship. Because no matter what our circumstances, no matter how upside down things appear to be, no matter how challenging the circumstances that we find ourselves faced with on a day-to-day basis, God is on his throne. And when God is on his throne, all is right in the world. And that's why we worship. Irrespective of our circumstances, regardless of our feelings, regardless of our confusion, regardless of our frustration, 
regardless of our health or well-being or lack of it, regardless of our, our emotional well-being or lack of it, we worship the Lord because he is the Lord. And he is enthroned. And he, and only he, is worthy of our worship. Revelation chapter 4 Verse 6 says this, in the center around the throne there are four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night and night and day, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. That's why we worship. Have a look at Isaiah um, verses 4 to 5 in chapter 6. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord Almighty. Uh, Vineyard theologian Don Williams, he wrote, As the revelation of God as King comes down, worship goes up. As we get a sense, as we get a picture, as we get an impression, as we get, we get it into our heads, this idea and this notion, this picture of God as king, our response is worship. And worship goes up. And, and right throughout the scriptures, you see this revelation of, of, of God as king. And what we start to see here, I think, in Isaiah chapter 6, is we begin to see this progression um, You've got this movement, this journey, I think, of worship, right? Um, where Isaiah, he's in the midst of his circumstances. And what he does is in the middle, midst of his circumstances, no matter how challenging they may be, the first thing he does is he sees the Lord. He sees the Lord, and he sees the Lord not as a lamb, but as the lion of Judah. He sees the Lord as the king. He sees the Lord as this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And then uh, this remarkable thing happens. Uh, from seeing kind of God and the Lord in all his greatness, high and exalted, you know, the the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've got the doorposts uh, and thresholds shaking. You know, the whole temple is filled uh, with smoke. This is the picture that Isaiah has of the Lord seated on the throne. This this revelation of this awesome God, the creator of the universe and everything within it. But in that moment, it's in that moment of seeing God enthroned, seeing God in his glory, seeing the, the, the holiness, the awesomeness, the majesty of God, Isaiah immediately sees himself. Because the next thing he says is, Whoa, woe to me, I cried. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. 
You see, as we see him, as we have this overwhelming sense of his greatness, the holiness of God, the awesomeness um, of God, something happens in this moment. And I think it happens every time we gather together to worship. Because in that moment of revelation of him as king, um, we also get to see something of the fatherhood of God. We also get to see that this creator God, this holy and righteous, powerful and mighty God, actually he sees us. He sees us and he loves us and sent his son to die for us. And there's this humbling result that causes us to kind of fall on our faces. Because it's in the midst of worship, it's in the midst of the revelation of who he is as holy, majestic, wonderful God. That we actually see ourselves. We see ourselves in the light of his glory and his goodness. And we see all of our sin and our stuff and our rebellious hearts and all the stuff that's in us. And what it does is it causes us to cry out to him um, in repentance as we ask him to forgive us. And to set us free, as Kate was saying. And that's the, that's the intimacy that I'm talking about. That's the, that's the exchange, the intimate exchange that happens as and when we worship. And that's what I believe the Lord has mandated us with here in the vineyard. It's in the moment. There's a moment when we are worshiping like we were this morning. That for me it came around, what was that hymn we sang? Uh, My Jesus, I love you. So in that, up until that point I'd been getting a revelation of God as king, the majesty and the glory of his splendor. And then in that moment I suddenly saw myself in light of his goodness and his grace which caused me to come to a place of repentance. In that moment, we see ourselves for who we are. And what we see is the great God of the universe. He comes down from his throne in the, person of the, wonderful, in the, in the presence of the wonderful person of Jesus. And he forgives us and he makes us righteous. Have a look at verse uh, 6, I think it is. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. And said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's what happens in that moment. There's this revelation of God as king. And we see ourselves in the light of his glory and his goodness. And the blood of Jesus comes and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And leads us in the way everlasting. Have a look at, I think it's verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I I am, send me. Uh, Because that's what worship's all about. Eventually, worship's all about surrender. You know, the reason that we stick our hands up like this, right, is, is, is literally, it's just we've got to find ways to express our surrender, our submission. It's why sometimes you'll see people lying flat out on the floor, you know, during worship. That it's, 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 we, we want to get ourselves into a physical position that is a, an outward expression of an inward attitude of what's going on in my heart. And so the only thing we know how to do is like, you know, it's like stick them up. It's like, ah, I submit, I surrender, I surrender. What else can I do? Worship is all about surrendering. In Hebrew, the word worship means to, it means to fall down. It means to bow down. It's to, to fall down, to surrender, to give ourselves up, to give up. And, 
And this is where worship, true worship really begins. Because worship is about, it, it destroys our narcissism. You know, our, our what's in it for me attitude. It's all about me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was going on worship this morning. It wasn't very good. You know, out of tune and, you know, I didn't know that song. I couldn't join in. Boy, I didn't get anything out of worship this morning. Well, you're not supposed to. It's not for you. It's not for us to get anything out of, right? If we get anything out of worship, that's because of the goodness and grace of God chooses to allow us to receive something from it. Worship is nothing for us. It's all for him. Uh, it's Worship is not about getting. Worship is about giving. This is our offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. We give our lives over to God. And that's why we do it every time that we gather together week in, week out. That's why we are very intentional about having times of worship. Why, why can't we just do that at home? You know, why do we bother with all of this setup and this paraphernalia and the bands and the sound and the chairs and the coffee, this ridiculously unsociable time of the week? Um, why? Um, because we're worshipping the king. And because we're worshipping King Jesus, we rearrange the furniture. When the king comes to town, you know, the town gets painted. You know, know, they say the queen thinks that everywhere smells of fresh paint. You know, and because people go to a lot of trouble when the queen of the country is coming to visit. We go to a lot of trouble because we're worshipping the king. Theologian Eugene Peterson, he's been in a bit of bother this week, poor chap. Um, he said this, he said, worship is the way in which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we assign to deliberate, for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he is confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we will have no chance of attending to him at all at other times in other places. What he's saying is like our, our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that unless we create time to pay deliberate attention in worshipping God, chances are it won't happen. Leon Morris said this about worship. He said, true worship is at a cost. And this is something that still needs to be learned on a day when people take church going lightly. When they will go to the church only if it is easy, if the church is near, if the choir is good, if the preacher is approved, if the congregation is socially acceptable, if the weather isn't bad, if friends haven't popped in to visit, and if any one of 101 things haven't stopped them. That's why we do it, week in, week out. That's why in your house groups or your small groups, hopefully, week in, week out, you're taking time to worship the Lord together in song. Uh, that's why whenever you're at anything that this church does, there should be a time of worship, of interrupting our preoccupation with ourselves to attend intentionally, deliberately to the presence of the Almighty, uh, to go on this journey of intimacy as individual followers of Jesus in, as part of the collective family of God, a set-aside time where we fix our eyes on the king where we see him we fix our eyes on jesus no matter what we're going through so that we can see the lord high and lifted up and as we see the lord uh, as king enthroned on high and, and we have that revelation that we have that vision as we we begin worshiping him 
Uh, we see um, the, his train filling the temple. We see his holiness. We see his greatness. We see his majesty. We see his awesomeness. That revelation overwhelms us because it's in the light of the revelation of God as king that we see ourselves for who we really are. And in the light of his radiance and glory, we, we see our hearts, we see our attitudes, we see our sin. And we respond, the only way that we can is that we say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And then the most amazing thing takes place, this most incredible exchange, the profoundest mystery of all, God in his glory and his holiness and his majesty. He looks at me, sat there on a Sunday morning, he looks at me in my sin and my depravity and my darkness and whatever, and he loves me completely. He loves me utterly. He loves you completely. He loves you utterly. He loves you. He loves me so much that all of the stuff that he sees, he says, let me take that from you. You don't want to carry that stuff around. Let me take that off you. And he takes all of that stuff and he takes all of my stuff and he takes all of my hurt and all of my bitterness and he takes it upon himself. He takes it upon Jesus Christ, his only son, so that he can pay the price. And what other way can I respond to so great a God, to so loving a Father, than to surrender myself? The revelation that he has given his life for me, why would I, how could I do anything else but give my life to him? To give my life, to lay down my life, to lay down my agenda, to lay down my desires, to lay down my dreams, my hopes, whatever, to serve him. Okay? Worship. Why don't you stand?